Hi everybody, Jimmy DeYoung, welcome to Prophecy Today. I've got temporary studios set up in a place called Alamo, Texas. Now we're not at the Alamo, which was there and the battle that took place in San Antonio, Texas a number of years ago. But this is the town of Alamo. We're about eight miles from McAllen, Texas. And on Thursday, President Trump came here to inspect the border wall. Very interesting. Was not able to get over to see the president. And by the way, he did not try try to stop by and see me either. I don't understand why. But we're having a great time at a place called Bibleville. It is a Bible conference. And we've been speaking all week. The people here are so gracious, so eager to study the prophetic word of God. We'll leave here. And uh, this afternoon, drive over to Houston, and then on Sunday, fly into Tampa, going over to Word of Life, Florida. We'll be all week there at Word of Life, Florida, teaching a brand new series on the United States in Bible prophecy. That's going to be a great study. Hope you people in the Florida area can come over and join us at Word of Life, Florida, there in Hudson, Florida. Well, we're here. Jim Jr. is going to join me as my co-host on Prophecy Today today. And Jim Jr. will be talking with Winky Madad and a little bit later, David James, right here on the broadcast. But right now, we have our very good friend, great broadcast partner, Ken Timmerman, Mike's side. And Ken, let me just get right underway with you. Looks like our old buddy, Tyup Erdogan has decided to call for a joint conference or a a coalition with the Turks, the Russians, and the Iranians as they were going to take over the area there in Syria that the United States is pulling out from. What do you know about this? Well, that's right, Jimmy. But uh, first, I really got to say, uh, as I hear about your schedule and about your recent mishap, I wonder if the Lord isn't trying to give you a little nudge, perhaps, to slow down a bit, my friend. I will keep you in, in my prayers and pray for your recovery, and I hope our listeners do as well. Well, thank you, sir, and my doctor's telling me the exact same thing. With two witnesses, the Lord is speaking to me. Yeah, take, take it easy, get well. You're, you're too valuable, and your wisdom is too important for all of us. Thank you, sir. As for Turkey, this is a development that's been underway for a little while, uh, Erdogan would love to have a, an alliance with Russia and Iran. He's closer to having an alliance with the Iranians, but nevertheless, he has serious differences with all of them. And one of the major differences is over Syria. Erdogan has, from the get-go, been against Assad. He called for Assad's ouster. He has supported some of the opponents, uh, the radical jihadi groups opposing Assad. And now he's hoping to go to Russia to meet with Putin uh, next week. Putin, by the way, has not confirmed that. Uh, so, you know, this is Erdogan trying to insert himself and to increase his stature. And especially, especially, let's not forget it, what he really wants is a green light from Russia to go whack the Kurds. Remember, just this past week, he refused to meet with U.S. National Security Advisor John Bolton because Bolton uh, publicly stated that the United States would oppose any Turkish military move into northern Syria, which Erdogan has announced he wants to do, if they attacked America's Kurdish allies. And uh, Erdogan has just delivered a blistering, blistering attack 
against Bolton in the Turkish parliament, calling him names and basically threatening him with all kinds of stuff, saying Turkey will go after the Kurds whenever they want to because they're terrorists, they're not uh, Turkey's Kurdish citizens. So again, this is Erdogan trying to bolster his role, trying to win Russian support. I don't think he's going to succeed. Let me talk to you about that Bolton visit to the Middle East. He was first in Israel, had conversations with the prime minister there. And then he went to Turkey and warned Erdogan about targeting the Kurds. However, was that warning a threat that the United States may come against Turkey should they continue to target these Kurds? Well, I I don't know if it was a military threat, but it was certainly a very candid expression of displeasure with holding out the idea that there could be sanctions or there could be other actions against Turkey. Don't forget, President Trump, although he boasts of having a good relationship, personal relationship with Erdogan, has not hesitated to put sanctions on Turkey when Erdogan, for example, refused to release a U.S. pastor uh, wrongly held in a Turkish jail. Uh, After the U.S. sanctions went into effect, Erdogan released the pastor, Pastor Brunson, who returned to the United States. So this president in the United States is willing to use U.S. power in ways to put pressure on uh, recalcitrant leaders like Erdogan, and I think he'll do the same thing should Erdogan make the mistake of attacking the Kurds in northern Syria. Ken, in that region of the world, we always talk about Iran and what they're doing, but now there's a lawmaker in Iran, I understand, has warned that Iran could collapse something similar to the way the Soviet Union has done in the past. What do you know about that? Well, what's interesting is that uh, this lawmaker, he's a so-called moderate, right? He's a supporter of the so-called reformist movement. And there, there are a number of them in the parliament. What's interesting is that he's saying this publicly. People have been saying this quietly for two decades, frankly, that Iran could collapse like the Soviet Union. There's long been talk of Ayatollah Gorbachev. That's what they said about Hatami, the former president, in 1997 when he was elected. In other words, this notion that reforms... Uh, such as Gorbachev carried out in in the Soviet Union, would lead to the collapse. What's different here is that this lawmaker is saying it's not the reforms that are going to lead to the collapse. It's the failure to to reform that will lead to collapse. It's the failure to bring economic prosperity to the Iranian people. It's the failure to provide them with food, with drinkable water. There have been protests in the past two weeks by Iranian farmers in central Iran, demanding that the government provide them water for irrigation, because they've had this disastrous policy in recent years, the government has, of of building these dams, which in fact have starved farmers of drinking water, and really it's been a disaster, an ecological disaster across Iran. Uh, And so you've got the farmers turning against the regime, you have retirees joining these protests, going against the regime, Uh, You have all sorts of ordinary citizens joining in political demonstrations against the regime. And that's what this lawmaker is warning against. He's saying if the regime leaders don't recognize uh, that they have to do something, that they have to reform or engage in, in, in meeting the people's needs, they could go away. They could be defeated. You know, we all know that it's not the parliament that makes the decisions, nor even is it the president of Iran really making the decisions. It's the Supreme Council and the Supreme Leader, the Ayatollah, 
Now there's concern, danger, that as Iran is preparing for war, he may have some problems as well. Well, that's right. This was a pretty astonishing statement in Tehran this past week by the leader of Islamic Jihad, uh, the Palestinian Islamic Jihad, Ziad Nakala. And he confirmed in public statements that uh, the Iranians were working with the Palestinian and Lebanese, quote, resistance, and that the next war with Israel would include a united front on the north and the south against Israel. So the Hezbollah in the north, Palestinians in the south from Gaza. And that's something that we've known about. We've talked about on this program, Jimmy, but here we're, we are hearing it now right from the horse's mouth from one of these Palestinian leaders. Uh, at the same time, at the same time, again, others inside Iran are warning against the problems. Uh, we just spoke about this before, this member of parliament, but there are others as well. There's the grandson of Ayatollah Khomeini, Hassan Khomeini, somebody who has also been a long-time, quote, moderate or reformist. He's warning that the Islamic regime could disappear if it fails to take into account the uh, basic problems facing the people of Iran, which are food, water, and economic prosperity. And meanwhile, in Washington, D.C., a freshman in the United States Congress has put up a map in her office, and it has had a line drawn through Israel and replaced it with Palestine. This Palestinian member of the United States Congress, the very first one, by the way, negating Israel, saying that Palestine is the location. This is not going to work well with the Israelis, is it? Well, it's not going to work well with her fellow members of Congress. Uh, let's start right there, Jimmy. Uh, you, know, you have a, a member of Congress, Rashida Talib, who has a history in her brief tenure. She only took office on January 3rd. So in less than a week, she has already gotten national headlines for calling the presence of the United States uh, a term that I won't repeat here, but a very obscene term, and making other comments in public, refusing to apologize. She's an extremist. Okay, let's, let's be very clear. She's an extremist, even for the Democrat Party. She's far to the left. She's pro-Palestinian. Uh, she's anti-Semitic. She's an anti-Semite, uh, very clearly. And she is using her office to promote the agenda of divestment from Israel, of sanctions against Israel and the denial of Israel's right to exist. Witness this map where she points to Israel on the map and puts up a little post-it note that says Palestine. (laughs) Very, very interesting development even in the activities of the United States Congress here in America. Having great prophetic significance because the battle between the Israelis and the Palestinians will continue until the Messiah comes, Obadiah, verse 18. Hey, Ken, thank you so very much. It's great to have you on board at the broadcast table to update us on geopolitical activities around the world. We need you. Thank you for helping us out this time. Well, Jimmy, we need you too, so please uh, take care of yourself. And uh, I'll be praying for your rapid recovery. Thank you so very much, my dear friend. God bless you. Talk to you next week. We're going to take a break right now. And when we come back, we've got a Middle East news update. I know it sounded like we were giving a Middle East news report with Ken Timmerman. But we're going to zero in on Israel, Jerusalem, and the Israeli state, a Jewish state. 
That's all ahead right here on Prophecy Today. Just how close are we to the rapture of the church? Do events taking place in the Middle East and around the world have prophetic significance? In his latest book, Sound the Trumpets, Jimmy DeYoung examines these questions and explains just how near the rapture of the church could possibly be. By comparing four trends from prophetic scripture to current events taking place in the world today, Jimmy shows that the stage is set, every actor is in place, and the curtain is about to go up on the end-time scenario set forth in the scriptures. Sound the Trumpets is a must-read for every serious student of Bible prophecy. To order your copy of Jimmy DeYoung's new book, Sound the Trumpets, for only $15, call us today at 8-PROPHECY-8. That's 877-674-3298. Or visit us on the World Wide Web at prophecytoday.com. Call today and make sure to get your copy of Sound the Trumpets. Every believer needs to understand Bible prophecy. Whether you're a novice or a student, we are here to help you. Just visit prophecytoday.com and click on the link for the Prophecy Bookstore. There you will find a large selection of CD sets, DVDs, and books for the Bible prophecy student written by Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and other prominent scholars. While you're there, be sure to check out Dr. DeYoung's latest series called Presidents, Politics, and Prophecy. This series examines how God has used human leaders in general and specifically the last seven U.S. presidents to set the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. This was shot on location in Washington, D.C. and is available on DVD or as a 10-hour audio series on CD. Be sure to check back often for special deals. You can visit prophecytoday.com and click on Bookstore or you can go directly to prophecybookstore.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. Jimmy DeYoung, still in temporary studios, right here in Alamo, Texas. We're going to make this afternoon our way up to Houston, and then tomorrow going over to Word of Life, Florida. We'll be there all next week. If you're in that region, love to have you come study the Word of God with us. As promised, we have our Middle East News update David Dolan is going to come to the broadcast table. We'll talk about a number of things. And David, I know there's a lot of rioting going on in the Gaza Strip right now. I had heard reports that Hamas was going to increase Gaza violence, basically to cover up their incompetence. And we don't know if that's the case or not. But uh, give us the latest you know on that, which took place yesterday and is continuing on. Well, Jimmy, yes, there was the IDF said at least 13,000 Palestinians took part in the riots. That's the largest number in some time. And that came after Hamas earlier in the week threatened to attack Israel if it didn't put pressure on the Palestinian Authority to stop some anti-Hamas measures that it's uh, undertaken. So a very tense situation, Jimmy, and one that could easily lead to more fighting and more rocket attacks and uh, well, the conflicts that we've been seeing just continuing on into the new year. Yes, that Israeli-Palestinian conflict, 4,000 years old ultimately, beginning in the womb of their mother, Jacob and Esau, found in the book of Genesis chapter 25, now making itself very much manifest 
in the battle there at the Gaza border with Israel. But I read an opinion piece earlier this week, David, that uh, really tried to help me see this whole thing in focus. It talked about the name of it was Palestinian Uncivil War. And what it was talking about, it looks like Hamas, which would be in the Gaza Strip, and Fatah, headed up by Mahmoud Abbas, the Palestinian Authority there in Ramallah, they hate each other as much as they hate Israel. And in fact, they have a civil war that's going on. Can you give us any enlightenment as far as that's concerned? Well, really, Jimmy, that does go back to the formation of Hamas in 1988, late 1987, actually. But this conflict is real. Um, the uh, Hamas has condemned all along the Palestinian authorities' attempts to make peace with Israel. Now, those have been very feeble attempts, as we know, but the peace treaty that Yasser Arafat signed was condemned by them. They continue to say Israel's total destruction is our only goal and is our ultimate goal, and we will not even feign peace, whereas the PA does still have some security cooperation in Judea and Samaria with Israeli forces. It's very weak, but there is some coordination. We've seen that in recent weeks. And, in fact, the PA, as I mentioned two or three weeks ago, did uh, undertake to arrest some Hamas terrorists in the Ramallah area, and Hamas strongly denounced that. So, indeed, there's a civil war there. There's no chance that Hamas is going to give up its control over the Gaza Strip. That's their mini-state, and the PA is trying to get that back. Egypt trying to keep both sides at bay. Other forces at work there. But, of course, Jimmy, it's just part of the larger <laughs> quilt in the Middle East of chaos and confusion. It's getting worse and worse to the north in Syria, to the east in Iran, all sorts of things going on. So it's just part of that process. And, of course, as we've mentioned, Hamas is strongly backed by Iran, and they want to keep that alliance, keep stirring up trouble. And uh, the rioting this weekend just proves, once again, that it hasn't halted, nothing has changed, and the violence continues. But it is an internal civil war, as you said, in many ways that the Israelis are caught in the middle of, really, and they would like to see them in some ways destroy each other, but in the meantime, rockets get fired and civilians get hurt and this sort of thing, so it's a very serious matter indeed. Earlier this week in Israel, John Bolton, who is the National Security Advisor for President Trump, he went in and visited with Netanyahu there in Israel before making his way over to Turkey. One of the things that uh, the Prime Minister of Israel asked of John Bolton to pass along to the president and also the entire uh, Trump administration was that the United States recognize Israel's sovereignty over the Golan Heights. Now, in essence, 3,500 years ago, when Joshua gave to the half-tribe of Manasseh the Golden Heights. They did so because it was a key security location as the Jewish people came into the Promised Land. That's exactly what Netanyahu wants. Do you think that's going to happen? And just relate to everybody how key that position is security-wise. 
Well, Jimmy, just the name tells it. It's the heights. It's the high ground over the Sea of Galilee, right above it. Uh, the high ground over the Hula Valley, the first place I lived in, in northern Israel, the upper Galilee area, meaning it's the ground that Syria used before 1967 to attack Israeli towns and kibbutz settlements and Tiberias, and even they would fire at boats on the Sea of Galilee, Israeli fishing boats in those years. So the Israelis got it in the Six-Day War. They are not ever going to turn it back. As I've mentioned, I think, before, it was originally in the 1922 accord that the League of Nations uh, came up with. It was supposed to be part of Israel. It's also the source of Israel's water for the Sea of Galilee. It comes mainly from the Golan area and from Mount Hermon above it. So this is extremely strategic ground. It's not very big. It's a little piece of territory, but very, very important and uh, the United States apparently recognizes that, at least the Trump administration does. And John Bolton's words were welcome, Jimmy, but he had a, quite, a tough, <laughs> quite a tough time in Jerusalem because Netanyahu, as the Jordanians, as um, others, are very, very concerned with the U.S. pullout from Syria, and that began on Friday, Jimmy. The U.S. military announced that they had begun removing equipment, no troops yet, but they had begun on Friday removing those U.S. forces, really, starting that process. This is very disturbing to the Israelis, as it is to the others I mentioned. And so Bolton had a very difficult time. Mike Pompeo came later in the week, the Secretary of State, and he reiterated support for Israel as well, as Bolton did very publicly, very strongly, that the U.S. backs Israel. But it's a confused message, and really people are not certain what's going on. Bolton confirmed the press reports that basically President Trump made this decision on a whim after speaking with Turkish strongman Erdogan, who said, look, we'll take care of ISIS. You don't need to keep your forces there anymore. Uh, we've defeated them anyway, but we'll make sure they stay defeated. Well, everyone knows Turkey doesn't want to get into Syria to deal with ISIS. They want to come in and go after the uh, Kurdish YPG forces that they claim are terrorists. And those, of course, are our close allies in the fight against ISIS. They've taken the most casualties. Very few U.S. servicemen have been killed in the conflict there, just, I think, six or seven but uh, many Kurdish forces have died, and so this is very, very confusing. We also heard, Jimmy, from the French foreign minister confirm that, first of all, that they have forces in Syria. That's the first time they've admitted that. And uh, he said that President Macron spoke with Donald Trump several times and tried to get him to change his mind, and he said the president did state, and we're hearing this, of course, from Bolton and from Pompeo as well this week, that the withdrawal would be slowed down, that it would maybe not take place at all, but it would be slowed down in the meantime, that they might even leave a remnant force in there, and that was reassuring to the Israelis. The French protested the U.S. pullout as well, so uh, Israel's uh, allies, France and Britain, uh, America's allies as well, are concerned about this uh, pullout. We'll just see where it goes at this point. 
but the Americans reaffirmed their support for the Kurdish forces. But, Jimmy, it's interesting that uh, Bolton went right from Jerusalem to Ankara. He was supposed to meet with Erdogan, and after stating in Jerusalem that this would be the case, that the U.S. would strongly defend its Kurdish allies, would not allow them to be attacked by the Turks, um, he wouldn't meet with Bolton. He canceled a meeting they were supposed to have, so that was a very bad sign, a very tense situation there in Syria. And part of the regional tensions that are going on, Jimmy, and war in the region looks very, very possible, particularly, Jimmy, if the Iranians do launch these space satellites. They announced on Thursday that they, uh, President Rouhani of Iran announced that two satellites will be sent into space soon. They're supposed to be you know, looking at the weather and checking out uh, the scenery and that sort of thing. I remember when Israel launched its first satellite, the OFEC-1, many, many years ago now, about uh, 15, 20 years ago now, and they said it was a weather satellite. Well, of course, these are not. They're military satellites, and the Israelis have warned that if Iran does that, and the U.S., Pompeo warned the same, that if Iran does launch them, this could be a trigger for war. So there's a lot of tension in the area, Jimmy. We'll just see where it goes. But the Bible's coming true. The prophecies are unfolding right before our eyes, it seems. And every time I have that opportunity, I say the political in this world today setting the stage for the prophetic to be fulfilled. David Dolan, the man who covers the Middle East for us, and in particular Israel, Jerusalem, and all the surrounding area. David, thank you so very much, my good friend. We'll have another talk next week. You're welcome, Jimmy. God bless. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, Jim Jr. comes to the broadcast table. He has a conversation with Winky Madad. You don't want to miss that. It's all ahead right here on Prophecy Today. Have you always wanted to visit the land of Israel? Imagine what it would be like to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. With Joshua Travel, you can visit Israel past, present, and prophetic. The Bible will come alive as you see places like the shepherd's field where our Lord was born, Caesarea Philippi, Cana of Galilee, Capernaum, the Garden of Gethsemane, and the Garden Tomb. You'll even experience an exciting boat ride on the Sea of Galilee. You'll visit each site with Bible in hand as we take the time to not just visit the sites, but to help you understand their importance to our biblical heritage and to our prophetic future. We will place special emphasis on the eternal city of Jerusalem, the most important city in the world, and the place from where Jesus will rule and reign one day. Call Joshua Travel today at 423-821-3635 to find out more about this trip of a lifetime, or you can visit us online at joshuatravel.com. Well, welcome back to the second half hour of Prophecy Today weekend. In this half hour, we're going to talk to Israel Madad and Shiloh. We'll also be talking to John Rood as he gives us an update on the European Union. And at the end of this half hour, we'll have questions, and Dr. DeYoung will give answers to the questions that you have sent in to us. But first, let's go to Winky Madad in the center part of Israel. 
By the way, Wiki lives in Shiloh, which is in the settlement area, or Judea and Samaria. We're going to talk about that in a moment. But first of all, Winky, before we get to that conversation, I want to talk to you about the passing this last week of former Minister of Defense and Israel's Ambassador to the United States, Moshe Ahrens. Now, I had the privilege, when I was a 24-year-old young man in 1984, producing a radio program for the former head of the government press office under Prime Minister Menachem Begin, I had the privilege of sitting in the office of Moshe Ahrens back then. And so I got a chance to meet him. What will Israel miss and what will the leaders of Israel miss with his passing? Well, Jimmy, first of all, since you did have some personal interaction with him, you know that if you're looking for a man to describe as a gentleman, a man who carried himself with complete calmness and confidence in his beliefs and in his actions and in his thinking, I think that he would be one of the people you would choose to point out as a man who uh, should be emulated on the personal level. A man who did not, I can't remember him getting very angry at any point. He was always in control of himself, and you felt it when you you talked to him. He, He had an atmosphere around him which not too many people have. Secondly, he was a multifaceted person. By professional training, he was an aeronautical engineer. He trained the first generation of Israel's Air Force promotion and development into space. He headed Israel's aircraft industries uh, for about 16 years uh, in charge of the engineering department. Then he went into politics, and he began to list some of the things in which he was active, including also foreign minister. He stood on his principles, and he voted against the Camp David Accords back in 1979, when they were brought to the Knesset. He fought for something called the Lavi, which probably could have made Israel a, su- a-, a superpower in terms of export of uh, defense materials. And then in his later years, he became an author, historian, and corrected a narrative of the Holocaust uh, period in the Warsaw Ghetto when one group of fighters, to which I, the camp I belong, uh, was almost shut out of history until he came along and saved their memory. So you're talking about a, a man who did a lot of things, was a lot of things, and exuded personality that is uh, very much to be honored. He's a true leader that will be missed with the passing of Moshe Ahrens. Well, this week, Winky, we want to talk to you about a report that just came out this last week by the Yesha Council referring to the amount of the population of those that are living in the settlements or in the Judea-Samaria area. And that number has risen to about 450,000. Now, it has declined, but I want to talk, first of all, and one of the questions I always get when I take people to Israel is they always ask me, is that a settlement? Could you define for us what is a settlement and what is a, a, a regular city in Israel? Well, the term settlement up until 50 years ago, maybe, was a, a, a term that was neutral. I think if you go back in American history, they were the Texas settlers who moved into Texas. And settlements was an, a normal term of a, the beginnings of a village, of a town, uh, when the people first came to settle down. 
in a place. But then it began to take what we call a pejorative negative term, meaning something that didn't belong where it was or it was foreign to the area. So when people who do not like Jews living in Judea and Samaria refer to Shiloh, where I live, or other places, they'll call them settlements. We prefer to call them whatever they are. Uh, I live in a village, I think. I, we have just over 400 families. There are towns here. There are several cities. There are a couple of kibbutzim here and there. So we have a variety of, of residential locations. I use the term community, but I'm not going to get overexcited about uh, that term. It means where Jews are now living in the land of Israel, in the area that the original British mandate was supposed to have developed as the Jewish national home, but is not under full Israeli sovereignty since 1967, because no peace treaty or any other sort of arrangement has ever been finalized. So that's the definition by me of a settlement. Well, in the last couple of years, probably in about the last six or seven years, uh, although the number is up to about 450,000 uh, Jewish settlers that have moved into these communities to resettle the land, but that number is declining every year. Why is it declining? Well, first of all, I think we should applaud the fact that the Esher Council came out with the report. Many other bodies would sort of hide negative news. How negative is the news? I'm not quite sure that it's a severe drop, and I think that the cause of it is very simple. Not enough homes. And when you're having a large population, when you visited us, we have a good number of children per family above average. Not anybody or everybody can continue to live in a community if there's no, not enough houses. And so I think that this is a sort of a dip in the numbers in terms of population growth uh, that we'll see on the upcome within a year or two. So I am not that nervous or afraid of any sort of future continuing negative development. One of the questions that always comes up is the fact that why would these people move into these areas that seem to be on the far reaches of the borders of what is under Israel now? Well, I think the answer to that is people really don't understand the true and genuine desire of the Jews to recreate the national homeland. We were not in Judea and Samaria in 1967, only for 19 years, and that's only because we lost the battle in 1948. Anybody who opens up any history book will know that Jews were living in Hebron, even in Gaza and other places in what we call Judea and Samaria or the West Bank throughout history. It was only in the 20th century when Arabs began writing that Jews in these outlying places, as you noted, were forced to flee. We're back at where Jewish history was. So we feel, those of us who are out here, uh, that we have probably a better right to be in Shiloh, Hebron, Bethel, etc., than in Tel Aviv that was founded in 1909. It also, we understand that if a Palestinian, an independent Palestinian Arab state is established in this area, and you've been through this area, you know the hills, some of them you can peek into uh, Tel Aviv, definitely you can see Petah Tikva and the other eastern-lying cities on Israel's former borders. 
there'd be a huge security problem, and we'd probably just continue the violence because it would be too uh, enticing, if I could use that verb, uh, for the Arabs to come and continue any sort of terror campaign. So for two main reasons, and I can number a few more, uh, we do not want a Palestinian state here. And the only way to do it is with people living in Jewish communities throughout the area. We do not want to kick out Arabs. We do not want them to move. We simply do not want them to be able to control the future of Israel in any form. Now, you and I and my father, we are students of uh, the Word of God or the Bible, the Old Testament, the New Testament for us. In the Old Testament, there are 35 different passages that allude to the borders of Israel that God promised to the Jewish people forever. Uh, They only have today about one-tenth of what's been promised to them. Uh, you don't see a decline in in the population as a problem to the fulfillment of God's plan, do you? Jimmy, Jewish history has always been a series of ups and downs, but it's always been forward and always been up. And our history has gone through horrific periods, not only in the recent past century, but earlier. It's been tough remaining who we are as a people, with our own religion, our culture, our language, our customs, and our belief that we do and should belong back in the land of Israel for the future redemptive process, in which eventually even we'll see a rebuilt Jerusalem and a temple. I don't think many of us believe that will happen in a day. I don't even think Rome was built in a day, but Jerusalem is taking a little bit longer. But it's the attitude that I think we're preserving and we're being helped by people from all cultures and religions, who see that as part of the plan that is developing, which is only going to benefit mankind. And we have to do that. We hope we can do that as peaceful and as non-aggressive and as moral and ethical as possible if our enemies allow us to. We will defend ourselves. Everybody should defend themselves when they're attacked. Uh, so uh, if within a year, a year and a half, there's a slight drop, that is a dot on God's universe, which will be overcome by, I think, positive effort of us and others to continue what we're doing. I like what you said, Winky. It's the attitude of preserving for future generations. Winky, as always, I know my dad loves talking to you. I love talking to you. I love sitting at the fountain of wisdom that flows from out of you. It's been a great time this week talking to you, and we look forward to having another discussion about the future of Israel in the future with you. Jimmy, I thank you very much for the privilege of being on the program Best regards to your father, and goodbye to you and to our listeners. Great conversation, Jim, with Winky Medad and the death of Moshe Aarons, one of the founding fathers of the State of Israel, and then talking about the settlements, the areas, Jewish communities that are a part of what the Lord promised the Jewish people there in Judea and Samaria. Well, that's a key region of the world we got a report from just a moment ago. Right now, we go to another. It's the European Union. The man who covers that for us, John Rood. John, talk to me about Brexit. It looks like they've settled on a day that the Parliament of Great Britain is going to come together for Theresa May's deal for Brexit. That's been confirmed. What do we know? 
it is really coming down to the wire now with Brexit. I think we only have like 40-some possible days that Parliament uh, actually convenes. So the date has been set for the Parliament vote on the Brexit deal, uh, January 15th. But why would this pass now? It was actually pulled, the vote was pulled earlier because there was no chance of it passing. And so there's a tension here that the pro-Brexit camp uh, is not willing to compromise because the vote was to leave the European Union. Uh, that's what was done more than two years ago. And so now we have the Brexit deal, which is not necessarily leaving the European Union in that strict sense because of the northern Ireland backstop, whatever. Now, a new, a new a twist to this is that the Northern Ireland Parliament, which is referred to as Stormont, it's possible now they're going to throw the Northern Ireland question to the Northern Ireland Parliament, which is very, very, very interesting. This, of course, is all a part of how we see the European Union either becoming the infrastructure of the revived Roman Empire, which I believe is the case, or coming totally apart. Uh, this Brexit vote is going to be key for the other members of the European Union as well, will it not, John? Many of them are thinking about withdrawing from the European Union as well. So uh, this is a key component of their decision-making process, would it not be? Uh, absolutely. The whole Brexit issue in terms of the European Union is the biggest event since the uh, end of World War II. So we have a lot of factions that are at work. We have the uh, Eurosceptic parties, which have grown greatly in uh, Europe these last years. And now with the parliamentary elections coming up this year, it's the same thing. Uh, Europe is ready to completely lose control. The far-right European Union leaders and governments seem to be coming together to try to form some kind of an axis or a coalition as it relates to immigration. Now, this has been, in fact, they want to be anti-immigration, and this has been a major problem in the EU, allowing people to come basically from the Middle East and many Islamic peoples and so this far-right European government that is coming together as a coalition may be an answer to some of their questions, but not to ultimately answer all of them. The uh, immigration and culture is one additional line of division in the European Union. So we have the European Parliament elections in June, and it's expected for far-right parties to gain a great number of seats. Of course, they're very disenchanted with Europe and how it's gone, not just immigration, but in terms of a political union that they oppose. And then just recently, the uh, Hungarian prime minister has come and welcomed the creation of a type of anti-immigration alliance. The distinction of what's going to um, make the biggest difference in terms of the face of the European Union politics is if the Eurosceptic parties... Uh, they refer to them as, as far-right. It depends what terminology you're using. But if they can form a coalition, this will be the European Union hierarchy's worst nightmare because there will be a, uh, an agreement and a compromise on their side. So this is being referred to as the Rome-Warsaw axis 
which is a very interesting development here, because if the Eurosceptic side begins to cooperate, they actually could gain influence inside the European Commission itself. John, it's interesting to me to note that uh, the Pope, Pope Francis, is appealing to the European Union to let the stranded migrants ashore someplace there in the land area of the European Union. Now, the Pope plays a key role, maybe behind the scenes, not so much out front of the European Union, but most of the leaders of the EU are Catholics, so they have to listen to what he says, and this is a part of this immigration problem as well. The, the Pope, of course, as a religious leader, people are not as familiar with the Pope uh, having a political presence. So his latest appeal was actually directed uh, directly to Italy and to Malta, uh, which is highly significant because these are very Catholic countries. I've been to Malta, uh, taught there. It's just an island, 17 by 9 miles. And you know how many churches they have there? 350 churches in 17 by 9 miles. 98% is Roman Catholic. So the Pope urging specifically Italy and Malta to relieve of this immigration uh, crisis, which is happening now on the two humanitarian rescue ships, it's really uh, an assertion of political authority on Malta, which uh, up till now has not really worked, but the Catholic culture in Malta is extremely strong. So I do see this as a move of political presence, and Malta is extremely Catholic. He's trying to divide uh, what would be their focus on being Catholic or the immigration crisis. One more question for you, John. It's along the same line as we're talking now, immigration, and we mentioned earlier about the Islamic peoples are coming into Europe and in Europe, they're talking about the French Islamic community. They're talking about Great Britain's Islamic community. Well, Turkey's scolding Europe because of the use of Islam among the people that are coming in. Any significance to that as you see everything unfolding? Yeah, it was the head of Turkey's state religious authority, which is referred to as the Diyanet. And he actually made a speech trying to use a wedge saying that European attitudes of anti-Islamic actions is threatening European multiculturalism. This is really quite ludicrous because it, um, it's the idea that uh, Turkey itself opposes enormous, uh, enormously multiculturalism. And through these last uh, decades, you have many, many mosques that have been built across Europe, and yet to find churches in any of the Muslim nations is very difficult. And if they are there, they have been very persecuted or even forbidden. So the voice of Turkey scolding Europe in terms of non-tolerance is really an example of projection to an extreme. And in part, what is going to unfold in the end times when the Islamic peoples of this world play a key role, Ezekiel chapter 38, 
that coalition of nations formed to try to wipe out the Jewish state, lowest common denominator on those nations, they're Islamic. John, very key report from you today here on Prophecy Today, looking at the European Union, always key to have you on board with us. Thank you so very much, my good friend. We'll talk again next week. Thank you, Jimmy. Lots of things happening. We're going to bring Jim Jr. back to the broadcast table now. He has some prophecy questions. Some of you who are our listeners have sent them to us. Jim, if you'll introduce a couple of the questions, I'll get two answers for you, buddy. Catherine Mouse sends in a question. Is God warning the world that judgment is coming through all the disasters? They seem to come more often and are more intense. Would these be birth pains? You know, Catherine, I've got to tell you, these so-called disasters are actually God's plan for each and every one of us on this earth. Everything that happens, you may think it's a natural disaster. You may think a tornado has come. We were just down in Prattsville, Alabama. That's not very far from Tuscaloosa, Alabama, where it was a major disaster when the tornadoes went into that college town where the University of Alabama is. And uh, one of the pastors there at uh, the Heritage Baptist Church in Prattville was going to take a group of young people. They were going to go over to Tuscaloosa and see what they could do to help these people that have been devastated. God brought that into existence. In the eighth chapter of the book of Genesis, it talks about after the flood is over, cold and hot will be present. Summer, winter, spring, and fall would be present. So when cold and hot hit together, and I'm not a, a prognosticator, a weather prognosticator, but I do know enough that when cold and hot gets together in our atmosphere, that causes the winds, the, snow, the rainstorms, the thunderstorms, and the tornadoes, and even the hurricanes and the typhoons over there in the Far East. So all of these things are from God. It's, I believe, for getting our attention. I was talking with my wife Judy about this as we were driving over near Joplin, Missouri, we went into Springfield for a meeting, but on our way, we traveled through Joplin, Missouri, another location that was hit with this uh, tornadic activity, a terrible disaster there. Many lives were lost, etc. And uh, you know what she said to me? She said, wow. She said, now all of us realize we are not as independent as we thought. We must rely upon the Lord. The Lord has a plan. Look, everybody who was killed, the Lord knew one of two things. They were saved, and they were going to be forever with him. And what's greater? We all get scared to death of death. Look, what's on the other side? We're going to walk into the presence of Jesus Christ mm-hmm. at death. In fact, we don't even walk along. The angels, Luke 16, gather us up and take us into his presence. But the other side of that coin is the Lord in his omniscience, not because he makes it happen, but because he knows all things. There are going to be people that are going to be lost and not receive Christ as Lord and Savior. So, God wants to grab our attention. He wants everybody to look to him and get our eyes off the mundane things of this world, the desires, the ambitions, the attitudes, the attractions that we have on this world, and look to him. And sometimes he has to get our attention, and sometimes he does it with these things that we have seen unfolding recently. She asked a question about birth pains. You don't see these as birth pains. What would be the birth pains? Well, you've got to look at what the Word of God has to say again, Matthew chapter 24. 
the Lord gives us some information. He actually gave it to his disciples on the Mount of Olives. That's called the Olivet Discourse, recorded in Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke chapter uh, 21. It's talking about the deception. That's what he mentions first in verses 4, 5, 11, and 24 of Matthew 24. Then he talks about, in verse 6, wars and rumors of wars. And verse 7, he talks about kingdom against kingdom and nation against nation. He brings in famine. He brings in pestilence, which would be death. He, he talks about earthquakes and divers places. And that is what he refers to as the birth pangs. That's the indication that he is getting ready to come back to the earth. That'll be a seven-year period of time leading up to his return. And those items that I've just mentioned to you, those indicators that he's about to come, happen at the beginning. Everything you read in Matthew 24 is detailed over in the book of Revelation, chapter 6, when it's talking about the sealed judgment. Exact same indicators of what will be happening in that period of time. That's the beginning of the birth pangs. That's what it's talking about. What we do see here happening in some of these natural disasters is simply grabbing our attention. And I think that's the way the Lord works in these days in which we're living. And of course, those are going to be precursors as well. Not the birth pangs talked about in Matthew 24, but precursors of what's going to happen during that period to come, which if you know Christ as Lord and Savior, you will not have to go through. Catherine, this uh, this reminds me, this question and Dad's answer reminds me, uh, hermeneutics. Hermeneutics plays a very important part as you're studying Scripture and as you try to fit Scripture into you know, what you think is prophecy, what others think of prophecy. Hermeneutics is very key. Let me just remind you, hermeneutics is the science of interpreting Scripture. You need to understand, learn these principles, and apply them to your study of the Word of God. And as Jim has just said, it will help you to really come to a determination of what the Lord is trying to say to us. Not because it's my idea or so-and-so's idea or any book that you read, the idea conveyed there. It's what God's Word says. It's what the Lord is trying to tell us. So you need to understand hermeneutics, understand the principles, understand how to apply these principles and get a true understanding of God's Word. I take those principles and apply them to my teaching Mm. when I teach through the book of Revelation chronologically. And let me just remind you, you cannot study the book of Revelation numerically and understand it. What I mean by that, you can't study chapters 1 through 22, chapter by chapter by chapter, verse by verse, etc., You need to understand how the book of Revelation unfolds chronologically, and uh, that's the way you can really get a handle on understanding the book of Revelation. Thanks, Dad. Well, that's all the time that we have this week for Q&A. If you're interested in getting our commentaries on Daniel, Ezekiel, and Revelation, go to our Prophecy Today bookstore and look for the special prices that we have for those commentaries. We've got to take a break, and when we return, Dave James will be here with a conversation concerning the body of Christ, right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. Hi everybody, Jimmy DeYoung, and welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm here at Bibleville. This is a Bible conference grounds. 
right on the Mexican-U.S. border in a community named Alamo. Well, it's great to have you back. Jim Jr. is partnering with me in this broadcast today. He had a conversation with Winky Madad earlier. He's standing by here at the broadcast table. He will be talking with David James. They'll have an issue they're going to discuss that will be essential for you as a Christian to understand. You have to have the biblical understanding for your daily walk in your Christian life. So glad to have you along. We're going to drive over to Houston, Texas tomorrow, then fly on Sunday into Florida. We'll go to Tampa, make our way north up to Hudson and Word of Life, Florida. I'll be speaking at that Bible conference all week long. We have a brand new series we're going to be dealing with. It's entitled, The United States in Bible Prophecy. That may well be the most asked question that I have. Love to see you there. May I give you my poll question, please? Here it is on the left-hand side of the front page. Scroll down to it. You'll see it there. The poll question, with Trump's troop pullout in Syria getting underway, do you think that the Prime Minister of Israel has the right to annex the Golan Heights for the Israeli security needs of Israel in the Galilee region? That's the poll question. Please answer it, if you will, It'll help us to understand what you know about Bible prophecy. Now, as promised, here's Jim and his conversation with David James. What's that time of the week where we go to David James to have a conversation, a conversation that pertains to the body of Christ and what the body of Christ is dealing with? Last week, we caught up with Dave as he was leaving for the Philippines for three weeks, and now he's just finished up his first week of teaching at the Word of Life Bible Institute at the campus south of Manila. Dave, it's great to be with you. How's it going? Everything's going great. I just finished teaching God's plan through the ages, and it's a course that I describe as going from eternity past to eternity future in 10 hours or less. It's, it's been a great weekend, a great time in the Philippines so far. I'm sure it has, and I love that class. As a matter of fact, uh, it's one of the classes that we're talking about doing at our next School of Prophets is you teaching through God's plan through the ages again, and we're looking forward to that. Well, this week, Dave, we've received an email from one of our listeners that actually connects with the course you just finished teaching. And this listener was concerned that we may have created some confusion with the way we have sometimes discussed Reformed theology in relation to dispensationalism. That's true, and I first would want to, uh, again, encourage all of our listeners, feel free to write in any time. If you have a word of encouragement, that's appreciated, but uh, if you have some concerns or questions or disagreements, we're very happy to uh, hear about those as well and address those as we have an opportunity. Let me just uh, briefly read some of what was in the email. This writer says, your Saturday news roundup is informative and helpful. However, I have noticed how you and some of your guests keep branding reform theologians as anti-dispensationalists goes on to say, I trust you realize the difference between Reformed theology and covenant theology. He then points out that Reformed theologians, those that I know and trust, subscribe to the five solas of the Reformation and the doctrines of grace, and all of them I'm familiar with are dispensationalists. And he goes on to say, when you paint all of them with the same broad brush without making clear distinctions, you confuse people and potentially so discord. So this is an opportunity for us to uh, deal with that. 
Well, we know that this can quickly become a complicated issue. And of course, we only have a limited amount of time for any given topic. But we want to try to clear up any confusion that there might be out there. So let's first discuss Reformed theology, where the term comes from, and what it is generally meant by it. Well, I think most of our listeners would understand that the term Reformed theology comes from the idea of the Reformation. Back in 1517, Martin Luther, who is considered by many to be the father of the Reformation, took a stand and and posted 95 statements uh, against the Pope and uh, how the Pope was handling things with regard to indulgences, the doctrine of purgatory, and uh, and things like that, even though uh, Martin Luther at the time was a Catholic monk. And he sought to actually reform the Catholic Church from within. He saw that there was a problem with authority in the Church. But most importantly, in reading Romans chapter 1, verse 17, where it says that the just shall live by faith, God really used that to touch his heart to show him that the doctrine of justification, salvation, uh, comes by faith alone and not through the sacraments and the teaching of the Church. And of course, he was one in in a line of Reformers, and there were those that followed him who actually departed from the Catholic Church and uh, led the Protestant Reformation. But when we talk about Reformed theology today, we talk about not only what Luther did, but what developed as a result of the work of John Calvin and then later covenant theology. So when we talk about Reformed theology, it's not just covenant theology, and it's not just Calvinism, it's actually the two taken together. Well, without getting too far into the weeds, what would you say are one of the two uh, of the main things that separates five-point Calvinism from what we would consider to be the biblical position concerning the doctrine of salvation? Well, as you said, we don't want to get too far into the weeds, but just to summarize, uh, we could summarize Calvinism this way, that in eternity past, God chose some to salvation, and in the context of hearing the gospel, the elect, those that God has chosen to salvation, God will regenerate they will actually be born again so that they can believe, whereas we would understand that in the context of hearing the gospel, the Holy Spirit draws someone and convicts them of the truth of the gospel, and then they place their faith and trust in Christ for their salvation, for their forgiveness of sin, and for eternal life, and upon the basis of that faith in Christ's finished work, that they are regenerated and and are born again. And so they reverse those two things, regeneration and faith. The, The Calvinist says you are regenerated first so that you can believe. We would understand the Bible to teach that you believe and are thus regenerated, even though we would say that they happen at the same point in time. Another major distinction would be that the five-point Calvinist would say that Christ died only for the elect, only for those who will be saved, whereas we would understand, and most dispensationalists uh, would understand, that Christ died for all of humanity 
and that there is that opportunity to trust in Christ as, as someone is drawn by the Holy Spirit. So those would be major uh, issues. And, and the reason this is important from a practical perspective is the five-point Calvinist could, cannot actually tell an individual person, an individual uh, unsaved person, or a group of people that God loves you and Christ died for you because you never know if you're one of the elect, which I think is really a, a, a dramatic problem with uh Calvinism when it comes to the matter of evangelism. As a follow-up then, what would be a few of the main differences between covenant theology and dispensational theology? Well, covenant theology tends to see that God carries out his program on the basis of two or three theological covenants, the two main covenants that they that almost all covenant theologians would agree on would be the covenant of works that God made with Adam, and then when Adam failed, God extended the covenant of grace to the elect, and so God's plan is carried out around the idea of redemption, whereas the dispensationalists would understand that there are four major covenants that God made with his chosen people, the nation of Israel, and that would be the Abrahamic covenant in beginning in Genesis chapter 12, the land covenant in Deuteronomy 28 through 30, uh, the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7, and the new covenant in Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36. And we would understand that these biblical covenants form the basis for there being a distinction between Israel and the church, whereas the covenant theologian of building his theology around uh, theological covenants that aren't explicitly stated in the Bible, either believes that in the present dispensation or the present day that the Church has either replaced Israel in God's program and the promises that God made to Israel are being fulfilled spiritually in the Church, or more logically, and what most covenant theologians would say, is that the Church, the one people of God, goes back at least to Abraham and more logically all the way back to Adam, so that uh, the Church today is just a different expression of the one people of God, whereas the dispensationalists would understand that there are two peoples of God that have two positions and places in God's program. Uh, the dispensationalists would also see that that distinction continues into a literal millennial reign of Christ on the earth, and we would also understand that prior to a seven-year tribulation period that Christ will take the Church home to be with himself, and God starts dealing once again with the nation of Israel in Daniel's 70th week. So those would be two, uh, a few of the major differences between covenant theology and dispensationalism. Well, as we wrap up for today, our listener noted in his email that all the Reformed people he knew are dispensationalists. But in your view, is there really such a thing as Reformed dispensationalists? Actually, I think that's a bit of a misunderstanding, perhaps, on the part of our listener, and, and uh, I say that with all due respect. I would put it this way. The dispensationalists that he knows 
are would be five point Calvinists, but they wouldn't be fully reformed in their theology. So they would hold to a reformed theology of salvation, but they wouldn't hold to a reformed eschatology or the study of last things. And uh, probably the most well known uh, Cal- fully five point Calvinist dispensationalist of our generation would be John MacArthur, who is fully reformed or fully five point Calvinist in his doctrine of salvation but he would also be uh, a dispensationalist, and I think that is the kind of dispensationalist that our our listener uh, had noted. So to suggest that there would be actually a fully reformed dispensationalist is something of an oxymoron, because reformed theology, when taken together, would include both five-point Calvinism and uh, covenant theology. So I don't think it really works or, or makes sense, at least in today's theological climate or situation, to talk about a Reformed dispensationalist. You know, besides taking a class, a seminary class, or and it's and this topic is not necessarily taught in churches. And and if they don't take your class uh, and and helping to understand, could you suggest any books that a person could buy or purchase that would help them uh, in an understanding uh, in the topic of what we are discussing today? Sure. Two of the top ones that I would recommend are actually now classics. Uh, I would consider classics from dispensationalists. One of them would be Dispensationalism, that is the title, Dispensationalism, by Charles Ryrie. And then the second would be There Really Is a Difference by Reynolds Showers. And both of those books, especially taken together, would really give our listeners a solid foundation in dispensationalism, as well as with Dr. Shower's book, Understanding the Difference Between the Two Systems. And then I would also recommend the book by Reynolds Showers, What on Earth is God Doing?, which my course, God's Plan Through the Ages, is is loosely based upon that flow in his book, which was written actually for the average person in, in, the, in the pew. Well, we want to thank you, David, for an excellent, thorough ex- examination of this topic and an answering of the letter that one of our listeners has sent in to us. And as anyone knows, I receive most of those letters. I will pass either those that pertain to Dave to Dave. He takes them very seriously. This is something that's important to us as we are helping the body of Christ to understand the issues that they're facing today and to help them through that understanding process, to help them to grow in the Lord and in their faith. David, thank you so much. We're praying for you as you're there in the Philippines, as you're teaching young men Uh, to go forth, which is great because you're discipling them, you're teaching them that they will go forth uh, and teach proper study methods, proper theology uh, to their congregations, to their churches, to their ministries in the future. We thank you so much, David, for being with us this week. Always glad to do it. Thanks, Jimmy. What a great conversation with Dave James, and keep him in your prayers as he's teaching at the Bible Institute there in the Philippines, training those young men to go about teaching God's Word to their congregations. Well, we're going to have to take a break, and when we come back, Dr. DeYoung will take a look at the book right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. 
Prophecy Today is heard all across the USA on the Prophecy Today radio network, but also it is heard around the world through our website at prophecytoday.com. And Jay, there are many other features on our prophecytoday.com website, like daily news updated out of the Middle East as it pertains to what's happening prophetically. Special reports can be heard right on our website at prophecytoday.com. We have Prophecy Q&A available for you. Questions asked in the past can be answered on the website if you just check it out and go to that particular spot. Prophecy Quiz is available, and parts of our Prophecy Today program, if you should miss any part of it, will be heard the next week right here at prophecytoday.com. And don't forget, you can even email your questions to us for our live radio broadcast. Just go to our website at prophecytoday.com. You'll be amazed, you'll be surprised at what you'll find on our website. Be sure to visit us at prophecytoday.com on the World Wide Web. Have you ever wanted to visit Israel and trace the footsteps of Jesus? Hi, I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr., and along with VCY America, I'm excited to announce our upcoming trip March 13th through the 22nd, 2019. Imagine what it would be like to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. We're going to look at Israel past, present, and future. The Bible will come alive as you see places such as the shepherd's fields, Capernaum, the Garden of Gethsemane, and the Garden Tomb. You'll even experience an exciting boat ride on the Sea of Galilee. You'll visit each site with Bible in hand as we take the time not only to visit the site, but to help you understand their importance to our biblical heritage and our prophetic future. We will place special emphasis on the eternal city of Jerusalem, the most important city in the world, and the place where Jesus will rule and reign one day. Call Joshua Travel today, 423-821-3635, to find out more about our VCY America Prophecy Today Israel trip, March 13th through the 22nd. It's time right now here on Prophecy Today for us to take a look at the book. Thus far on the broadcast, we've had our broadcast partners come to the broadcast table with reports from the regions of the world that they cover for us. Ken Timmerman, Geopolitical Activities, David Dolan, The Middle East, and the update he gives us, Winky Madad, he lives in the Jewish settlement area in Israel, stays on top of that story for us. He did that today in a conversation with Jim Jr. John Rood, who looks at the European Union, giving us an update there. David James, talking about issues. He had the opportunity to come to the broadcast table with Jim Jr. just a moment ago to talk about a very important issue, Reformed theology and dispensationalism, which is the proper way to interpret the Bible. Well, I want you to understand that we have this service available here on Prophecy Today weekend because I want you to be updated as to what is going on around the world from a current event perspective. It's so important that you hear and then compare that with the prophetic scenario that is found in God's Word. If you missed any of the conversations that we had earlier on the broadcast, go to my website after I finish a look at the book, and then you'll be able to go to PTRN. The website address, of course, prophecytoday.com, PTRN, Prophecy Today Radio Network. There you can listen to my interviews, the conversations that Jim Jr. and I had with our broadcast partners. Then call a friend, tell them they need to hear the exact same report that the broadcast partners are giving. 
Again, the website, prophecytoday.com. Go to PTRN to listen to these reports. As you do, you'll know that Ken Timmerman talked about Tayyip Erdogan. He's calling for an alliance between Turkey, Russia, and Iran. He wants to cover the vacancy that has been left by the United States military that has pulled out of Syria, about 2,000 soldiers, and they've already started pulling out the equipment as of today. This is key because Tayyip Erdogan has an ulterior motive. He has a relationship with the people that he told Donald Trump he would take care of. We're talking about Islamic State. Well, Tayyip Erdogan and his son, they are mysteriously involved in transporting, for example, gasoline between the Middle East there in Iran, Iraq, and Syria over to the European Union. This is how Tayyip Erdogan gave advice to President Trump to pull out the troops and promise to take care of Islamic State. You don't allow that to happen. That's what's unfolding. But that's a part of the prophetic scenario found in the Word of God. Daniel chapter 11 talks about Syria is the location that will make the first move against the Jewish state of Israel. That's Daniel 11 and verse 40. They'll come in, take the Golden Heights back, endeavor to try to destroy the Jewish state of Israel. Now, that's the plan. They're there two and a half miles from the border of Israel in Canetra in the Golden Heights on the Syrian side. They're getting ready to do exactly what I talked about, which is the scenario that God's Word lays out for the end times. David Dolan, of course, always gives us a Middle East news update He reported that the Prime Minister of Israel requested from the United States that Israel be allowed to annex the Golan Heights. The Golan Heights, actually, when you go back to the book of Joshua, was given to the half-tribe of Manasseh some 3,500 years ago when Joshua led the children of Israel into the Promised Land. The tribe of Manasseh was a military force, and there in the Golden Heights, it was a very tight military location because of the heights overlooking the Galilee area. That's the same reason that Israel would like to annex the Golden Heights today. So we're talking about information that surfaced 3,500 years ago, but is surfacing again today. You know, the Golan Heights surrounds the area of the Jewish settlement area, Judea and Samaria. As you move south out of the Galilee, you move into Judea and Samaria. That's where over 450,000 Jewish people, their Jewish settlers are living in Jewish communities, whichever phrase you would like to use. But they're there, and that's on a piece of real estate that the Palestinians say is occupied territory. Well, the Lord promised to give that land to them. He said that in Ezekiel chapter 34, 18 times he made that statement and all the ramifications of giving the land to the Jewish people. That's a location that will be key in the security as well for the Jewish people. You've got to watch what's going on there. Winky Madad reported to my son Jim Jr. in their conversation. John Rood talked about the Brexit vote. He covers the European Union for us. It's set for January the 15th. Now it's either your guess or my guess as to whether that will take place. Last time, Theresa May did not allow the Parliament of Great Britain to vote. We'll have to see it. 
But this Brexit situation is key as it relates to the revival of the Roman Empire because the European Union is at least the infrastructure of that Roman Empire, which will come to power. That's found in Daniel chapter 7, Revelation chapter 17. It's key for the end times that will unfold two major powers at the time of the tribulation. That major power led by Russia, found there in Ezekiel 38, and then the major power of the European Union, found in Daniel chapter 7. And remember, when Jim Jr. had a conversation with David James, they talked about the literal interpretation of the Word of God. As you listen to our broadcast partners today, you will recognize they're talking about current events that are actually setting the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. And then, as I have here on a look at the book, We take the prophetic word of God, put it together with those current events, and we see everything coming into better focus that will help us to recognize we are here at the time of the end. The next event on God's calendar of activities will be the rapture of the church. When Jesus shouts, the archangel shouts, the trumpet of God sounds, and we're caught up to meet him in the air. Thinking about everything our broadcast partners brought to our attention and the Word of God as we have taken a look at the book, it's evidence that that rapture could happen at any moment. And having said that, nothing left for me to say except let's keep looking up until... Thank you so much for joining us today. This is Jay Johnson inviting you to join us again next week for more of Prophecy Today. Thank you.